In this episode, neurology resident Dave Ho interviews Dr. Michelle Kaku, a neuromuscular specialist, on the topic of the management of myasthenia gravis. A reminder that the purpose of this podcast is for education and not for direct medical advice. We hope you enjoy. Our topic today is the management of myasthenia gravis. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Cocker. Welcome. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Myasthenia gravis is a disorder of the postsynaptic neuromuscular junction, typically described as fluctuating and progressive weakness of limb, ocular bulbar, and respiratory muscles. Typically, the range of treatment options for myasthenia gravis include chronic immunosuppressive therapies, thymectomy, symptomatic treatment with colonosteroid inhibition. So, what is your approach to starting a patient with myasthenia gravis on medications? Thanks, Dave. So, I think my goal for every myasthenic patient is to have their disease controlled on the least amount of medication with the least amount of side effects, hopefully. Uh, with that in mind, we can sort of think about approach to therapy. I think part of the decision to start a patient on certain medications includes a, a variety of factors, including how severe their disease is when they first present, uh, what type of myasthenia they have, for example, if they're generalized um, acetylcholine receptor positive, musk, ocular, uh, if their disease is mild or severe, uh, etc. So I think uh, sort of breaking them into two groups, I think if when a patient walks into the outpatient clinic, with relatively mild symptoms, we may be able to start them on um, a medication like pyridostigmine, a cholinesterase inhibitor, um, and or low-dose prednisone with a slow taper uh, up until we get some clinical improvement. Um, given the time of onset of pyridostigmine, which is about 15 minutes, patients know pretty quickly whether or not um, the medication will, will work for them. Starting with pyridostigmine, how do you monitor for signs of clinical improvement? Do you have any advice with regards to the monitoring of side effects? Yeah, so I think with uh, with peridostigmine, again, the, the onset is about 15 minutes um, with full effect around two hours. So I think patients know pretty quickly uh, in terms of whether they're responding or not um, to them. Um, obviously, with, with too much um, peridostigmine, you can potentially get significant cholinergic side effects, including um, excessive salivation, um, sweating, GI upset, uh, et cetera. So those are the symptoms that I, I tell them to the patients to look out for. Um, ultimately, these outpatients may need to go on chronic immunosuppression, either, either steroids or a steroid-sparing agent, and, but we usually start low and titrate up. Um, for a patient, on the other hand, that presents with more severe disease, for example, in crisis, we may need to treat them acutely with either IVIG or plasmapheresis. Uh, they'll also likely need to be started on prednisone to help control their disease. Um, I think if, if a patient is admitted and getting acute treatment, you can start on a low-dose prednisone, for example, 5 to 10 milligrams, and titrate up every couple of days uh, until you know you get to the dose where they're they're uh, clinically stable. I think starting low and going slow is a very good strategy for a lot of medications we use in neurology, but do you have a typical strategy for dose titration? Sure. Um, so usually I start relatively low on prednisone, like 5 or, or 10 milligrams, um, and I'll continue to increase by maybe 5 or 10 milligrams outpatient every couple of days until they really reach a clinical benefit. 
Um, I'll see them pretty frequently in clinic uh, when I first start prednisone to, to clinically monitor and see if the symptoms are improving. Um, and then once they're clinically stable, I will typically remain on that dose uh, and then over time, slowly start to go down to see what the least amount of prednisone I may be able to get them on. So we've discussed glucocorticoid therapy now. Um, could you also mention a little bit about non-steroidal immunosuppressive agents such as azathioprine or mycophenolate? Sure. So most patients will be started on a glucocorticoid like prednisone first, regardless of whether or not they'll concurrently be started on a steroid-sparing immunosuppressant like azathioprine or mycophenolate. Um, once a patient is clinically stable, if I can maintain them on a very low dose of, of prednisone, for example, like 5 to 10 milligrams, then I won't necessarily start a steroid-sparing immunosuppressant. However, if a patient's disease is really only controlled with higher doses, like 15, 20, 30 milligrams, then these patients will likely need to go on a steroid-sparing immunosuppressant to avoid some of the long-term side effects of prednisone, um, you know, which include elevated glucose, um, facial swelling, um, you know, irritability, and then long-term uh, additional side effects such as osteoporosis. How do you choose between azathioprine and mycophenolate? That's a great question, and it's interesting because I think if you query neuromuscular specialists, you'll get different answers. I actually was talking to my neuromuscular division the other day, and about 50% of us would uh, start azathioprine first, and the other 50% would start mycophenolate mofetil. So I think it really depends on the patient. First, you want to look at comorbidities, um, for example, liver function. Um, I think all things being considered between the two, I probably would start Celsept um, for a variety of reasons. Um, typically, it is a shorter duration of time of which uh, the effects are seen with mycophenolate mofetil about six months versus azathioprine can sometimes take six to even 12 months. Um, with azathioprine, there's um, more risk of uh, hepatic um, uh, of liver dysfunction. And um, so I think usually I would go with mycophenolate mofetil. We were also discussing about the inpatient management of patients with myasthenia gravis, and sometimes we have to start plasmapheresis or IVIG. How do you decide between the two? Sure. So there is good data for both plasmapheresis and IVIG. Uh, a lot, I think, depends on the patient's comorbidities. So, for example, if a patient has had a prior stroke or uh, prior DVT or some sort of clotting disorder, um, then I may avoid IVIG and go with plasmapheresis. Um, plasmapheresis, on the other hand, also is a little bit more invasive in that you have to place a line. Um, there's increased risk of infection. Uh, it also tends to prolong stays in hospitals because usually you give plasmapheresis every other day for five treatments, which turns out to be about 10 days. Um, so I think first I look at comorbidities to see, uh, to, to go towards one or the other. There is some data that a small percentage of patients with myasthenia gravis actually respond to plasmapheresis that don't necessarily respond to IVIG. That said, all things being equal, I typically tend to go with IVIG. Um, usually the course of treatment is shorter. Uh, there is reduced risk of infection with any kind of procedure. 
um, as well as complications of, of line placement with, um, with plasmapheresis. Another uh, treatment modality that's frequently discussed for patients with myasthenic gravis is pursuing thymectomy. Um, what do you typically refer your patients with myasthenia gravis for thymectomy? Sure. So if any patient has a thymoma, I will refer for thymectomy. Um, if a patient has acetylcholine receptor positive myasthenia gravis um, without a thymoma, then I will also refer for thymectomy. So there was uh article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016 that uh, essentially broke up um, a, a group of patients with myasthenia gravis that were all acetylcholine receptor positive without thymoma into two groups. One group received thymectomy with prednisone and the other group received just prednisone alone. And uh, ultimately, the patients that got prednisone and thymectomy um, did significantly better in terms of uh, needing re reduced numbers of uh, prednisone dosing, uh, fewer hospitalizations, um, clinically better based on um, MGFA scores, and just needing less immunosuppression. So based on the results of this study, typically all patients with acetylcholine receptor antibody myasthenia um, should get a uh, thymectomy. Now, patients with musk myasthenia uh, Unfortunately, there does not seem to be a difference in outcome, so I don't typically refer these patients for a thymectomy. Uh, speaking about uh, thymectomies a little further, I also wanted to discuss the age cutoff that was studied. Yeah, that's a great question. So they looked at patients that were 18 to 65. When it comes to the treatment of myasthenia gravis, it's equally important to also avoid drugs that exacerbate symptoms. Uh, we won't go into an exhaustive list of all medications that can exacerbate myasthenia gravis, but I think it's important for us at least to go through some common drug groups that should raise alarm. So I think a good clinical resource that I suggest to all of my patients is a medication list that's listed on the MGFA website, the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America website. So it's a pretty exhaustive list, and if they're ever thinking about starting a new medication, I encourage them to consult that list. Um, I, I won't go into every single medication with them, of uh, all, every single medication that they should avoid um, in the visit, but I will refer them to that list, and I probably will name just a couple, including certain antibiotics, um, such as fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides, um, and also warn them that if they get in any kind of surgery, they should tell their anesthesiologist because they probably want to avoid certain neuromuscular blocking agents and paralytics. Somewhat related to modern events, um, are there any vaccinations that patients with myasthenia gravis should avoid? Yeah, so patients taking immunosuppressant medications should not take any live attenuated vaccinations, but otherwise myasthenics can really have any other type of vaccination, and I actually encourage them to get vaccinated early, for example, for um, the flu every year. What about the COVID vaccine? That's a great question. So I don't know if we know fully um, the outcomes of our patients that are immunosuppressed receiving COVID vaccine, but thus far, um, there's really been no significant um, adverse reactions or events. So I would recommend that all my patients with myasthenia gravis get the COVID vaccine as early as they possibly can. 
Thank you for listening. This has been Neurology Clinical Pearls. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.